Welcome to Sage Against the Machine. I'm Irene Supre. And I'm Sandy Skies. In a world drowning in knowledge, we're seeking wisdom. We're here to explore systems that increase the health and well-being of humanity and the natural world. We'll be in conversation with artists, scientists, tacticians, thinkers, and advocates about solutions to today's polycrisis. Let's get started. Hey, Sandy. Hi, Irene. Here we are. We are here for our first filmed and recorded conversation, something we've been talking about doing for a while. How did we get here today? You know, we talked about doing this uh, podcast. We've talked about doing this for a while. And I think we were working on a little project together and we were in the car and we hadn't seen each other for a while. And you asked me, how are you feeling about life right now? And I was like, life? You mean the poly crisis? (laughs) (laughs) And you said, yeah. And I said, uh, I'm having a hard time finding hope, if I'm really honest. And that is the first time I've ever felt that. Yeah. Yeah, and I I resonated with that because I had just been in conversation with a lot of colleagues. And in our conversation and sort of our settling with each other, we asked how we were feeling. And it was this, it was that same exhaustion. Exhaustion. And then you said to me, on, uh, I remember you said, oh my gosh, so you're hopeless. Yeah. And I said, nope, no, I don't feel hopeless. What I feel is resolve. I'm tired. I feel resolve. And there's just no option not to keep trying to find solutions to these intractable, huge problems. Right. System problems, machine problems. Yeah, machine problems. And you said. And I said, isn't that interesting? Because the word we all landed as a group was resolute. And I love that word, resolute. It's the same thing, resolved. That even in feeling exhausted and tired and overwhelmed, because who wouldn't today feel overwhelmed? To be resolute is what we need. And so... How we got here is we kind of thought to each other, well, gosh, if we're feeling that way and we've been working in it a long time and we're always sort of the Pollyannas in the room, like, yes, we can. Yes. We can change. We can do it. And we're suddenly looking at each other and saying, I'm real tired. How could we tell a better story? Because, you know, I always say you want a better ending, tell a better story. Right, right. Well, and I think our friendship for, gosh, it's been almost two decades. We've been circling around the work we both feel called to do, which is understanding that parts of, if not the whole machine, isn't working. And how do we help make it this the world we want it to be? It doesn't matter if we're getting together for a walk or a dinner or a cocktail. Somehow you and I are always having the same conversation and we keep bringing each other the signs of hope we see, that the places we know are working, examples of, of things we see that are changing the world in a good way. So all of that, we just keep talking with each other about it. But should we tell the story of how we met a couple of decades yeah, ago? Yeah, well, that, I, I that, mean that, that was really the beginning. That was it. the beginning. That was the beginning of it. Somebody in our town mm-hmm. said, you two should know each other. And that happens a lot. You know, you're 
you talk to people and they, they're, you know, talking about the same kind of work or the same kinds of, you know, themes or things they're interested in. And somebody said, you two should meet each other. They said that to me and I was like, sure. I, I had just left a big job at a big global company, started my own thing. And I was interested in finding people who saw the same thing I did. So I reached out and said, hey, let's meet for coffee. Yeah. So we set up a coffee. We set up a coffee date, and I promptly missed it. And you and I went out there and <laughs> waited and waited and did my emails, and you didn't show. And so then I texted you and or emailed or something. And one of us, one I of think us, I said, yeah, I'm so I'm sorry. sorry. Yep. You know, let's set it up again. And we set up another meeting. Yep. And you didn't show again. <laughs> and then and like, I didn't okay. show again. I right. didn't show again. And here's the truth that at the time I was I was struggling with some very, very serious health issues. And I honestly wasn't even sure I was going to make it. And I thought to myself, well, I just want to skulk away and hope I never see this person again. I was so embarrassed and, and I felt so much shame. And then I was like, I could die. Who cares? And I sent you an email and I said, you know, please don't give up on us, I have a feeling about us working together. And I wrote back and said, of course we'll meet because women don't give up on each other. And that just like moved me so deeply because that's true. I know it's true. And so you said show up. Yeah. And you were like calendared 15 minutes. I, and then I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to go to a coffee shop that's across the street from my office this time instead of having to drive. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to block 15, 30 minutes max. And if we just connect, that'll be good. Yeah. And so I pulled up after, it looked like a scene out of Memento, the movie. I'm like writing it on notes and <laughs> it's in my phone and I've got alarms and I've got a sticky note in my car and on the refrigerator and I'm tattooing it on myself. And I park in short-term 30-minute parking <laughs> in front of this coffee shop because we've got 15 to 20 minutes. Right. Right. And you were on time. And I was on time. You were there. And we sat, sat down, down and you said, what do you want to talk about? And I said, gross national happiness. You probably know nothing about it. And then, I, yeah. And then I said, I actually do know something about it. It's the first thing I wrote about with my very first blog post. And right then I knew something special was actually starting to happen. Yeah, because not a lot of people knew about no. it. And I said, you're kidding. You said, no, it's one of the things that inspired me to to start my company. And uh, I said, I just had the Secretary of Gross National Happiness at my house. From the country of Bhutan. From we were talking specifically about this new model that they've created and are experimenting with in the country of Bhutan. So, of course, that blew my mind. I'm like, you had the Secretary of Happiness in your car here in Santa Cruz. Tell me about that. And then we just launched, and we launched into a three-hour conversation. Yes, it was. Um, yep. I got a ticket. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, to <laughs> me, the, the yeah, you got a ticket. Luckily, I hadn't had any meetings back of that, so that was fine. <laughs> but to me, the the story of the Minister of Happiness, and I remember you telling me, it still sticks with me today, you told me the story of the thing he asked you to do as soon as you picked him up from the airport, was take him to the most ancient beings, sentient beings in our area. And where did you take it him? It was the Redwoods. Yeah. It was the Redwoods. 
And it got even weirder because actually I picked him up from the airport and we drove along the beach first and we pulled up to a stop sign and a truck pulled right in front of us. And I had never seen this bumper sticker in Santa Cruz before. And uh, on the truck in front of us was a bumper sticker that said, I love Bhutan. Oh my God. And the secretary of gross national happiness, his name was Karma uh, Shatim. Karma said, oh my goodness, look at that. He was so shocked. And so was I. I was like, I have never seen that before. So we go to the Redwoods and we're walking through the Redwoods and, and he asked me what had gotten me engaged about gross national happiness. And it had actually been my illness. You know, I, I, I wanted to, I wanted some map points for my kids to head for if I didn't make it. And, you know, measuring success beyond gross national product was, seemed imperative to me. I had never been interested in economics before. And I realized, wow, we need a completely different economic paradigm. (laughs) That's all. And uh, so I, I said to him, I, I got sick and I wasn't sure I was going to make it. And he, he said to me, why do you uh, think you lived? And I said, oh gosh, I don't know. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep. And I recited this line from a Robert Frost poem. And Karma looked at me, stopped, and looked at me and said, and I have promises to keep. Yeah. And I remember I kind of uh, put my hand over my heart and said to him, hello again. <laughs> And it just became, and it was sort of, that's what that was, was going on. on with you and I too. That, that happened of, with you and I. There you are again. I, I remember, I don't know how we got on the subject of the ampersand. And I said, oh, that's my favorite symbol. You said, I think we should try to work together. Right. And I was like, I don't know if I can even work. Right yeah. Now. Yeah. And, and I said, I need to tell you why I missed. And I said, I'm, I'm sick. And I reached in my pocket and I pulled out this, ampersand it was a little one little right. metal yes, ampersand yes. and put it on the table and you said and i said oh my gosh i love i collect ampersands too uh, that is like my favorite symbol this idea of yes and uh and i said in fact um you, and then you said i said, I said uh that's how i've been getting through yes and uh, i'm not right. dead yet i'm gonna die doing yes yeah. i'm sick yeah and if right. this is it i'm gonna die doing and and, and then you said, yeah. And then you were like, wow, but the ampersand is my favorite symbol. And I said, yeah, I, I, I want to get a tattoo right here on my arm. And I, I put my arm on the table and I pulled up my sleeve and pointed to my forearm. It's the only tattoo I've ever wanted. I want to get yes. And with the S as an ampersand. And I remember your face just kind of went white. Yeah. And you were like, what? What? And I said, are you kidding me? And I said, uh, yeah, right here for my 60th birthday or my 50th birthday. I want right. to get, that's yeah. the only tattoo I've ever won. And I said, and then for my 50th birthday, you put your I put arm, my on- arm out and lifted up my sleeve. And I said, you mean like this? And there's my tattoo that says yes and on my forearm that I had just gotten, I don't know, a couple of months before. And you said, I got this for my 50th yes. birthday. It's the only tattoo I have. Right. And we just looked at each other and we're, we're like, like, that whoa right i mean we were like well we're going to be working together forever we're going to be yes in each other's lives and i just always feel like it's sort of like oh wow in the ether you find 
like a soul sister. Yeah, you know, right. for sure. It blew our minds. It I did. mean, it was like, and still does. It was like tears. Day. It was like, what Chills. is going on? Right. I mean, you know, it's one thing to have a a tattoo in the same place, but to have the exact yes and, which is not a, it's not like, oh, I have a, b- a butterfly here, or you know what I mean. <laughs> It's a like, unicorn. I'm a tramp stamp. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> this is the the particularness, if that's even a word, of this was striking. It was pretty profound. Yeah, and I think you know, for me, having left this big job, starting out on my own, starting a company, learning that you had your own company, and I had done the were, same, right? And, yeah, and you were seeking the same. How do we create meaning in our work, and how do we? How do we bring people along with us well, to see what we see in a way that they're comfortable and we're helping change hearts first and then the minds and the apparatus? And for me, just starting out on my own, to find a soul sister who saw what I saw and felt what I felt, it just gave me an energy and a sense and some courage to just keep going. Even, even though we, we circled around a lot of ways to work together, and we've done a few projects, et cetera. But what we both keep coming back to is this conversation with each other. Right. And I think for me, I'm, I'm 64. Same. Yeah, we're the we're same age. Work. Yes. Um, I, I had been many, 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 many times the only woman in the room. Many, 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 many times. And realized that I thought really differently about how to solve problems, how to, how to motivate employees, you know, all of it. I just saw things differently and found myself often <laughs> sitting at a table saying, don't say it, don't say it, yeah. don't say it. And then say, uh, you know, raise my hand and say, I just have to say this, yeah. you know? And so I think it was for me, meeting you and realizing that we had both been influenced by a couple of you know thinkers and and ideas gross national happiness being one of them Rianne Eisler being and her work uh, in partnership studies you had had a project with her and for the I mean Rianne Eisler is a a scholar social scientist brilliant social brilliant. scientist um is Holocaust here, here, survivor here in the Monterey Bay area but she's a renowned world leader. And I've read Chalice and the Blade, her thinking about a domination system and a partnership system had been on my mind for a long time, which is why the gross national happiness. I mean, all these things are so inter, intertwined in, a, in what I see as a necessary shift in thinking. This And she captured it decades ago in the in the framework of we're in a domination system and we need to be in a partnership system. And, you know, framing that in not particularly gender specifically, but in the idea that this skill set of partnership is embodied traditionally in exactly. feminine and masculine qualities. Right. Collaboration, cooperation, compassion, communication, as opposed to traditionally male leadership qualities of dominator, hierarchical, top-down, yeah, 
Command and control. Yeah. That, those kinds of things that I, yeah. And I was seeing that in the work I was doing inside corporations. I do work with companies who are trying to shift their environmental and social dimensions of their business to be more, to create, you know, a better, more equitable society. I mean, there are good people inside companies who want the same change. Because you companies are just people. That's right. I mean, that's the thing that, that, that we always it. forget. We right. can disembody the idea of a corporation, but the reality is it's run by, it serves, it's, you know, it's people. It's Soylent Green. It's people. <laughs> Corporations are people. That's right. And those people, many of them want change in the world. They do. And as women took on more and more leadership quality, I mean, leadership positions in corporate America, it was really evident to me that even if we were afraid to lead differently, afraid of being sort of blackballed or, you know, called soft, or we wanted to lead differently. Yeah. And so finding each other was is important or I was so. important. Right. Finding each other, finding like-minded people who... Including men who embody uh, those, absolutely. those characteristics. Right. It's not, we're but not talking what, about... You know, but that wisdom ruling the world. No, and that's Are we? well. No, I think what we're talking about is and the and the sage against the machine is is a beautiful way of expressing. There's a new wisdom that the world needs, and it it's out there and different artists and thinkers and leaders and all in all dimensions are waking up and are already awake that are expressing more. And it is against this current machine system that isn't working. And is well, I think I mean right? it's I mean, important to say that we are the machine. You know? Yes. I mean, that's the thing. It's not right. again, it's not some disembodied. Right. We can't externalize it. Yes, right. you're right. We can't you're externalize right. it. I think it's important to say that, you know, if you want to for me, I've always thought about just the scale of population in the last hundred years. Right. So my father, who passed away when he was 87 a few years ago, uh, you know, born at the turn of the century, or not the turn of the century, actually the year before the Great Depression, 1928. Mm -hmm. In his lifetime alone, we went from a billion and a half to seven and a half billion people on the planet. The scale of that is unprecedented. If you want to understand right, the, the complexity yes, yes. Right, right. Of, of the issues that we're facing, understand that first. And I think you know, it just gets too big and complex for people to imagine that there might be a different way to move forward. Well, and, and you know, you and I've talked about this as a queer person when you're in, you know, I, I sort of lived a straight existence for a while and then came out in my 30s. And I was in a system that I didn't see has so much rigidity and gender roles Baked and in, everything. Yeah. Right. So when you're in the system... I couldn't even see my own internalized homophobia about who I was as a person until I came out. And once you step out of a system, whatever system it is that you're in, all of a sudden you see systems and you're aware of them. And I think that's part of it is we're in our own sort of internalized machine that is, that is preventing us from expressing our full humanity. And you're right. We are the machine. We're in it. 
And all we're looking for and in conversations with each other always is, did you see that? Can you sense that? We bring that to each other in conversation of, these are the cracks in the system I'm seeing. Are you seeing this? Are you seeing, mm-hmm. this? seeing this change happening? This is actually happening. And I always liken it to, I use the phrase, close the gap time. Mm. You know, we s- sometimes spend a lot of time in the process of, right? And it's sort of like thinking about the the wall between East and West Germany coming down, right? It looks like it happened overnight when a bunch of young people jumped on top of the wall with their hammers and their rock music. And they took the wall down. And that's not what happened. It was decades yes. of resistance against that polarity. And I think that sometimes thinking about change mm-hmm. and embracing it and just deciding I'm going to be it, I'm going to walk it, being the outlier who says what's uncomfortable in the room or says, could we try it this way? Or just I think we're in a time when we need to look around and figure out how we're going to close the gap time. Yeah. I think about that a lot when I'm in boardrooms, when I'm in conference rooms and big multinational companies and corporations. I feel my my role is to call what I what I tell people. I'm here to call the question. I am here to be the can you do more? Can you do better? Can you move faster? The world is on fire. We all see it. Someone has to be the voice in the room to the system to point out the obvious and say, what are we going to do about it? And not a accusatory recriminations. It's more just, hey, what are we going to do? And that sort of brought us to sage against the machine. I mean, the idea of, I'd always thought so, you know, about change, um, you know, I saw Gorbachev speak when I was, I don't know, I was probably in my mid to late 20s. And he spoke at Stanford and I, I went and saw him speak with some friends. And And somebody in the audience said, you must have been a Manchurian candidate. Like you knew, you positioned yourself for like your entire life to be the person who was going to bring down, you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, communism in, in Russia. And he said, don't be ridiculous. I was a good communist my whole life until I wasn't, mm. until I saw it. Right. And yeah, that's what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, and he said, yes. I'm reviled in my country. People hate me. And I'll never forget, he said, the watershed moment is not for the people living through it. It's for the people who come after. It's actually chaotic yeah. and painful for the people who live through it. Right, and sometimes right. dangerous. Uh, but it's for the people who come after. So I've always thought about that. Right. We're going to have to be comfortable. We're living in a watershed moment. We are. No question in my mind. And it's uncomfortable and it's exhausting and it is, can make you feel not hopeless, but resolute. Yeah. Cause the challenges are big. Well, you know, I, I, I've been the, a speaker coach and the curator for TEDx Santa Cruz for a long time. And the conversations that we've tried to curate in this community are, yes, of course, reflective of, some of that thinking for me as I've been moving through my my ideas and other people's theories of change. And I think it's it's that idea that, you know, you can't always meet like energy with like energy. And what I saw was this 
this way that we are going to have to collaborate with each other is going to be different. Mm-hmm. And what do you mean? Say more about that. What do you mean? I mean, I mean that in a time when we are going to be competing for resources that we counted on as always available to us and the insta- global instability we're seeing. People saw it during the pandemic with the supply chain. Right, and, right. But now with climate crisis, as it's going to put pressure on the food, yes. on the food chain, yes. on all kinds of things. Um, how are we going to show up as humanity? In our deepest humanity, are we going to fall back on the same solutions to... Right. right. In this poly crisis, we either will shift into something new and better or not. Yeah, or right? it's going to be very... It's going to be very And hard. it's going to be very painful anyway. Either regardless, way. Regardless, even right. if we were showed up in our highest vibration of humanity... It's going to be very, very painful and challenging. And so we got to this idea of sage against the machine, sage embodying the wisdom of older women. You know, I know I feel different in uh, being 64, certainly. I just, I don't care what people think anymore. I just, I know it's a good place to be. It's a good place to be. There's a, and I don't mean that in a, dismissive way yeah it's just aggressive way no it's just a level of sureness maybe that's that sage that that grandmother wisdom is is it's real it's real and Mm -hmm. it's deep and it's compassionate and it's loving and that's what we need and we need more of that and we want to be in conversation about that with so many people which is why we're in conversation today that's right we're gonna we're going to be having conversations with People who inspire us to reclaim our hope. <laughs> right, right. And who are experimenting with thoughts, concepts, systems, all of it. Whether they're, like we said, they could be politicians or artists or activists or institutionalists. It doesn't and, matter. And there are people who are all of the above. Exactly. I mean, the it's going to be a fun. It, yeah. Set of conversations. Yeah. I'm excited. Me too. To be in it with you. Me too, sister. All right. Well, thank you for joining us today. It's been a fun conversation. Join us next time when we'll be talking with cultural historian, system scientist, attorney, and author, Dr. Rianne Eisler, known for her brilliant social science and biocultural research on partnership and dominator systems. Thank you for being part of this Sage Against the Machine community. If you were inspired, intrigued, or activated by our discussion, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Stay connected with us on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates, behind-the-scenes content, and to share your thoughts on today's topic. And if you have any ideas for future episodes or concepts you'd like us to cover, feel free to reach us at our website, sageagainstthemachine.com, for additional resources and exclusive content. Until next time, stay hopeful. The evidence of change is out there. Thanks for joining us as we Sage Sage Against against the Machine. Machine.